0: Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is both the skin and soft tissue, as well as the arterial venous and lymphatic modules from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topic we'll be covering today is the diabetic foot. So, a little bit of background. Diabetic foot problems are a significant healthcare issue, with foot complications being the most common reason for hospitalisation for diabetic patients. Up to a quarter of diabetics will end up with a foot complication, and the common ones include infections and ulcers. Some of them will have underlying osteomyelitis, and lots of these patients will have recurrent problems. And diabetes is the most common cause for amputation in our community. The pathophysiology of a diabetic foot is quite interesting, and I like to split it up into arterial issues, nerve issues, repetitive trauma, and leukocyte dysfunction. So in terms of arterial issues, patients who have diabetes are at risk of both microvascular and macrovascular complications. Microvascular disease is at the arteriola or very small unnamed vessel level. And this contributes to the nerve issues that I'll talk about in a little while. Macrovascular disease occurs in up to 30% of diabetics. And in diabetic patients, the sort of distribution of disease that they get is often disease in the arteries of the leg and the foot, so the smaller vessels, and they get really sort of widespread disease, not focal stenosis. And this is in contrast to smokers who are much more likely to get aortoiliac disease. And obviously the issue with there being a blood supply issue to the foot is that it leads to ischemia. Contributes to the development of ulceration and secondary infection and then reduces the ability of the foot to heal and recover from things like repetitive trauma and infections in the foot because you can't increase the blood supply that's needed to help with healing. The second issue is issues with the nerves. And so a combination of both the high sugar levels directly damaging the nerves, as well as the microvascular disease leading to damage to the nerves because of loss of the vasa nevorum, which are the little vessels that run with and supply blood to the nerves. Patients get peripheral neuropathy, which affects the sensory nerves. So they get loss of pain and temperature sensation in the foot and it starts distally in the foot and then moves more proximally. And they also get dysfunction of the autonomic nerves in the foot. And this leads to a warm, dry foot. And the consequences of peripheral neuropathy and issues with the nerves is that patients get an insensate foot that is susceptible to trauma and burns. And patients may not know that these have occurred they also get repetitive micro trauma to the joints and pressure points on the skin because they're not sensing and moving the foot like they normally would, and this leads to damage. And then the autonomic dysfunction leads to skin changes. So it leads to a warm, dry foot with thickened skin, and it actually leads to increased blood flow to the bones. And all of these things contribute to the development of deformity in the foot, so the Charcot foot is the typical kind of presentation of a deformed foot in the setting of diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And I'll talk about Charcot foot a little bit later. So then the next thing that contributes to a diabetic foot is repetitive trauma. And so as I've mentioned, patients will mobilize and they have loss of proprioception and loss of sensation. And so they get trauma to the foot that they don't notice. And then patients with diabetes are relatively immunosuppressed and they have leukocyte dysfunction that leads to a higher risk of infection and difficulty dealing with infection when it does occur. So just a little segue into Charcot foot, also known as Charcot neuroarthropathy. This is a progressive and destructive neuroarthropathy which consists of subluxation, pathological fractures and permanent destruction of the joints in the foot. And it's thought to be contributed to because of the repetitive microtrauma and also increased blood flow to the bones due to the autonomic dysfunction, which leads to increased osteoclast activity. And this leads to fractures and dislocations in the foot and characteristic deformities, including a rocker bottom foot where you lose the arches and they get this like the bottom of a rocking um, horse-shaped foot. Interestingly, there are three stages of Charcot foot. And stage one, also known as acute Charcot foot, is presentation with a hot, swollen, red foot. And this is often misdiagnosed because it looks like cellulitis or gout or a DVT. And patients have those sorts of things treated, but not the acute shaku foot treated. And this is the stage where you can actually intervene and make a difference on the outcome of for that patient. So patients um, may also present with stage two, which is a coalescent phase, and this is where they have multiple dislocations and um, fractures in the foot, and the most common site for these fractures is along the lis-frank area, which is at the junction between the metatarsals and the cuneiform bones, or they can also get Chopart fractures, which are kind of in the proximal forefoot or midfoot. And... The stage three is where there's bone consolidation. So it's after the acute process is done, the body tries to heal it and there's all this callus formation, and solid bone formation, but this leads to a solid deformity. And so in stage one disease, you want to try and pick that up early and the treatment is a total contact cast, so where they actually cast the foot and change the cast really regularly and try to stop the destruction of the foot. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about management of diabetic foot in general or the other sort of general things you can do to look after a charco foot. In terms of imaging for charco foot, x-rays may show the characteristic features, so destruction of the joints, periarticular fractures, and the rocker-bottom deformity. And in early Charcot disease, you can get an MRI scan, which can help differentiate between infection and an early Charcot foot. So getting back on track to talk about the clinical assessment of a diabetic foot, In general, when you're looking at a patient who's come in with a diabetic foot, you want to assess the foot generally. So looking for any ulceration, chronic wounds, necrotic ulcers, and any evidence of a deep space infection or tissue gangrene. Signs of a current infection include the presence of pus or two or more of the following. So pain, tenderness, swelling, redness, or warmth. And in terms of clinical assessment for underlying osteomyelitis, they like to talk about um, ulcers that have been there for a long time or recurrent in the same location, as well as if the ulcer probes to the bone and also for toe infections. If there's a sausage toe, then that suggests underlying osteomyelitis. If there is a diabetic foot infection, you want to take a culture with a swab and preferably a biopsy or a piece of deep tissue, such as the base of an ulcer or the bone, if you can. If there's just a superficial infection, you can usually treat it with just something to cover gram positives. But in diabetic foot infections, if there's a deeper infection, you need quite broad-spectrum antibiotics such as tazacin would be baseline in my institution for a diabetic foot infection. Other investigations you can do when you're looking at a diabetic foot is to try to determine whether or not there's any underlying osteomyelitis or a deeper infection. And so an plain x-ray can be helpful if you see bony destruction that can indicate osteomyelitis, but if it's not there, it doesn't rule out early osteomyelitis. And you might also be able to see gas in the tissues that suggests a deeper extension of the infection. And for osteomyelitis, the gold standard is an MRI, or you could also consider a labelled white cell scan. The next thing you want to do when you're looking at a diabetic foot is to assess the contribution of macrovascular ischemia and whether that is contributing to the diabetic foot. So you examine the pulses and assess the capillary refill. You can do an ankle brachial index, which is where you compare the systolic pressure at the ankle to the brachial artery. And normal is between 0.9 to 1.3. The issue with diabetic vascular disease is that the disease is often distal and there's often a lot of calcification. And so if the ankle brachial index is more than 1.3, then it suggests that there's a lot of calcium in the vessel and it's not compressible, so the test isn't reliable. And you can also measure the toe pressures and do a toe-to-brachial index. And a toe-to-brachial index of 0.7 or more is normal. And less than 0.3 is quite bad limb ischemia. And if you have an absolute toe pressure less than 40, it's very unlikely that a wound will heal. Other investigations that can be done for a diabetic foot include a duplex ultrasound, which can have a look at the arterial supply. It's not very good for looking at the tibial vessels and also obviously not the iliacs. CT angiogram is another option, but you need to be careful in diabetic patients who may have concomitant renal impairment or metformin, but it will give you a better picture of the whole limb. Once you've completed your nice and thorough assessment, um, one of the ways that vascular surgeons communicate or grade the degree of um, limb ischemia and diabetic feet is using the Wi-Fi score, which I talked about in the chronic limb ischemia episode, Although I think it's made specifically for chronic limb ischemia, diabetic feet often have chronic limb ischemia, and so I'm going to mention it here as well. So the Wi-Fi stands for W for wound, I for ischemia, and FI for foot infection. So W for wound grades it as 1, 2, or 3, uh, depending on whether there's a small shallow ulcer, a deep ulcer, or extensive de- deep ulcer with full thickness and also considers whether there's gangrene. So one is no gangrene, two is gangrene of digits, and three is more extensive gangrene. Ischemia is assessed with the ankle brachial index, and you can also use the ankle systolic pressure, which again grades from one, two, and three, um, depending on how bad the ankle brachial index is. And then foot infection is looking at two of either induration, erythema, pain or exudate and grades it as 1, 2 and 3. 1 is a mild infection, 2 is a deep infection and 3 is severe infection with systemic involvement. I don't think I'm going to remember all of the details of this for my exam, but I think it's a nice way to think about what you should be looking for when you're examining and thinking about a diabetic foot. So moving on now to management. Management of diabetic feet should be a multidisciplinary event. So you should be involving the endocrinologists, diabetes educators, podiatrists, infectious disease specialists, orthopedic surgeons, vascular surgeons, and general surgeons. The medical principles are to obviously optimize the patient medically. So you want to get their blood glucose control improved, and you want to aim for a HbA1c of less than 7 You want to treat any local infections as I've talked about and so medically this would include antibiotics and dressings and you might need to involve a wound nurse. You want to try to offload a diabetic foot with an acute issue. So this is keeping the leg elevated and you'll get the um, podiatrists on board to help you make orthotics or a darko to offload areas of the foot that are getting pressure while they're healing. Foot care is really important for diabetic patients even when they don't have an acute issue and some of the education that they might receive includes making sure they're wearing socks and shoes, regularly inspecting the foot for any issues, nail care and debridement of any hard callus that may contribute to a pressure area. Talking a little bit about Charcot foot, as I mentioned earlier, so principles of treatment for a Charcot foot is to try to maintain a foot-shaped foot and to prevent late pressure ulcers. And so in the acute phase, um, in that stage one, where you have an acute Charcot's foot, if you can get in early and get a total contact cast made for the patient, then you could potentially reduce the amount of damage and deformity that they end up with later on. Once they do have established deformities, the orthopedic surgeons can do a number of things, including arthrodesis, surgical removal of pressure points and bony prominences, and release of tight tendons in order to try to correct some of the issues with the foot and to take away the pressure areas. In terms of other interventional options, Obviously, patients have peripheral vascular disease, and the options, as we talked about in our chronic limb ischemia issue, if this is present, is both endovascular or surgical options. As I mentioned, it's often the smaller vessels in the leg and the foot that are affected in diabetic disease. So one of the issues for these patients is that they often don't have good targets for a bypass to be plugged into. But if they do have satisfactory anatomy, they could be considered for different types of bypasses, such as fem-pop, fem-tibial, or SFA or popliteal to the pedal. Um, although these are quite time-consuming and um, don't have very good long-term outcomes in diabetic patients, endovascular surgery often involves angioplasty or stenting of the smaller vessels. These don't have very good long-term outcomes but often these patients are presenting acutely with ischemia or um, due to an infection or an ulcer and what you're trying to do is just get this area to heal. And even though they have a reduced blood supply to the foot, Usually, if there's no ulcers and no infection, that might be enough to keep them going and to keep the foot healthy if they're looking after it. But when they get an infection, there's an increase in metabolic demand for healing to occur and that can't be met because of these stenoses. So often you just have to do angioplasties Um, And you may be able to repeat them a couple of times just to get the patient to a point where the foot heals. And then even though they lose that supply, they may not need that additional supply once all of the wounds have healed up and the infection is controlled. So that may be enough. The last thing to talk about, obviously, with diabetic patients is amputations. So these patients may require amputations um, throughout their lifetime and the aim is to try to take the minimal amount of tissue possible to leave a functional uh, foot if possible and obviously making sure that it has an ability to heal when you're doing an amputation. So making sure that there is enough blood supply for the amputation to heal. And the different options include just a toe, a transmetatarsal, Or you can do higher foot amputations such as through the Frank level or the Chopin level, but these are much more complicated. And then obviously in the previous episode, we talked about below knee amputation and above knee amputation being options as well. And that completes this episode on the diabetic foot. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate the podcast, leave me a review and subscribe to the program. Makes it easier for others to find and I love reading your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at firstincision. Happy studying!